0: Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege of celebrating the goodness of all you are for us, and particularly on this day, celebrating the resurrection of Christ. Now take the word of God and make application to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, today is a, a glorious day. It's a wonderful day. I love Easter. But really the, the the difficult thing about preaching on Easter is you know what I'm going to say before I open my mouth. So I'm going to stay on script this morning and just say, he is risen. risen. So that's what we're talking about this morning. But really, every Lord's Day is a celebration of the resurrection because in the early church, the early church said, you know, the resurrection of Christ is a hinge, is foundational. So they moved worship among God's people from the Sabbath to Sunday. So every Sunday is a resurrection celebration, but today we especially Celebrated, and I'm going to read from a text in Second and First Corinthians that will be read throughout Christendom today in churches that celebrate the historical reality of the resurrected Christ. Let me read a few verses from First Corinthians 15, starting in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile or void or worthless. And you are still in your sins. Then those who have died in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. Paul says if... if We are only hoping for the reality of Christ in this life. We're to be pitied more than all men because we are believing a lie. He says, but the reality is Christ has been raised from the dead. And he's the first fruits or the trailblazer of what is to come. You see, the Bible says that Christ is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus in the gospels. He pointed to Christ and he said to his men, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Isaiah 53, hundreds of years before Christ came, looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. And this is what Isaiah says about the ministry of the Messiah, the Lamb of God. He says, Surely... Verse 4 of Isaiah 53, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. For He was wounded for our transgressions, and He was crushed for our sins, our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His stripes we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, the sin of us all. And then writing as an apostle, as the eyewitness of the resurrected Christ, this is what Peter says regarding the Lamb of God. First Peter 1 verse 18, You know that you are not redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your forefathers with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake who through him are believers who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Now, Peter says, you know, in the secret council of the Trinity before time began, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit determined the the proper time for the Son to be born, supernaturally live a perfect life, die on the cross, and rise victorious. Wow. And then the New Testament book Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews talks about the once and for all suffering of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 says this, for every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices day after day after day, which can never take away sin. The sacrificial system looked forward to coming Messiah. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. One work, one offering on the cross. And that's why Romans 1 says he was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And Romans 10 says, if you believe in your heart that If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So the resurrection. So he's risen, and he's risen indeed. So, So my thesis this morning is this, because of the resurrection of Christ, my life as a believer in Jesus, a Christ follower, has sustainable, continuous, unconquerable hope. And hope is a vision of a preferable future. And so because of the resurrection of Jesus, my life has sustainable, continuous, unconquerable hope. Conversely, I hear this, in a world that is filled with sorrow and brokenness and pain, and this world is, you can easily slip into despair and dread and depression if you have no foundation for sustainable hope that sees a preferable future. If you live in this world that's filled with pain and sorrow and joy and laughter, but also tears, and you have no foundation for sustainable, ongoing hope, you can slip into dread and despair and despondency in a nanosecond. Some examples. A hundred years ago, there was a great, called the Great War in Europe, a horrendous, horrible, unnecessary war called World War I. 18 million people were killed. In the country of France, at that time, a population of 39 million. France lost 1.4 million people out of 39 million. Romania, the same population, the same percentage of their population. Europe bled themselves to death. And in the midst of this ridiculous, ongoing family feud, really, it's what World War I was. There's, there's a movement started in Switzerland 19 and 16 called the Dada Movement. And the Dada Movement, which involved primarily art but also poetry, uh, said that there's no rhyme or reason for living. There's no ultimate truth. There's nothing to live for. There's nothing to die for. They even came out with the Lord's Prayer. air Dada, which art in Dada, Dada be thy name. Thy Dada come. Thy Dada Come on earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our Dada. These make fun of the ultimate reality of God. It was the Dada movement. And so their art and their language reflected a cacophonic look at life. In fact, one art historian says that, that it was a reaction to what many artists of their day saw as nothing more than an insane spectacle of collective suicide that we called World War I. There was even a Dada manifesto, and the part of the manifesto was how to make a Dada poem. It's very interesting. The person said to make a Dada poem, you just take a newspaper and cut out random words and throw the random words in a bag and shake them up and pull them out one word at a time and glue it onto a page, and you have your original poem by yourself. And he said this original poem will be full of originality and creativity, but, quote, it will be unappreciated by the vulgar herd of people, close quote. I wish I'd thought of that in college when I had to write a poem, just put it out there like that. But there's no hope. There's nothing to live for. Therefore, there's no ultimate truth. There's no basis for hope. Fast forward to 1977, there was a group that hit the scene in England. In England, 1977, was in an economic downturn. It was a bad time in Great Britain, as it was in our country. And there's a group called the Sex Pistols that blazed on the scene, and they became the first group that brought in the punk music phase of, of music. Burnham Stone Magazine called them the 58th most important group in the history of music. I guess they made a photo finish with Mozart, you know, right there. But the Sex Pistols, their most important song, most well-known song, is God Save the Queen, and throughout the song, they say repeatedly, there's no future in England, there's no future, there's no future, no future in England. There's nothing to live for. I thought about this, and I thought about one of my favorite poets. is this guy named Dylan Thomas who died in November 1953. And Dylan Thomas was from Wales, enormously gifted. His most famous poem is where he said, Do not go gentle into that good night, but rage, rage against the dying of the light. Now, there's, shake your fist in the face of life. At the age of 39, Dylan Thomas died of alcohol poisoning in New York City. And his wife wrote a book several years later and said in the string of multiple affairs and endless alcohol binges we worshipped only at the the altar of the bar. But as I read read his life and I think about his life and taking the prime of his life there's no hope. You just rage. You just rage. You're just angry and you rage against the dying of the light. See it's easy to go from No sense of hope to despair and dread and despondency. It is so easy. Seventeen years ago, there was a a group. Can you show the picture of the book? If you're up there, if you're not up there, coffee break time. There you go. Thank you. So, seventeen years ago, there was two young men who, senior in high school. Raised in a suburb of Denver, one of my, our most beautiful cities. They were called the Trenchcoat Mafia. They put explosives into their, under their trench coat, guns and went to Columbine High School and killed 13 people and wounded scores of others. Their names were Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. Three months ago, Dylan Klebold's mother, Sue, wrote a book about her son and the aftermath of what's happened, and it's been received with mixed reviews. But in the book, she talks about, she says, I, I knew, I had no idea that my son, raised in an upper middle class home in a suburb of Denver with all the privileges of life and all the prospects of living life to the full, would cross into ultimate despair. And she said this. I want parents everywhere and people to be aware that things can seem awfully right when things are terribly, terribly wrong. Close quote. Despair. No hope, no foundation. You slip into despair. And this week we've all been emotionally impacted by what happened in Brussels. Can you show the picture of Brussels? It's not coming up here. This is from the Wall Street Journal. These are two of the people wounded in the attack in Brussels this week at the train station at the airport. There were, according to the BBC, there were 340 people injured. These are two of them. 101 are still in the hospital. of whom 62 are still in intensive care and to date 31 people have died. And as we think about this, we say with, with great understanding that only a small percentage of people who claim to be Islamic believe in this type of violence. We, we acknowledge that. But, but as, I, as I step back and I study world religions, and I've known many wonderful Muslim Islamic people, as I step back and I look at their concept of God, God or Allah is distant and obtuse and out there and holy and almighty And and he's just, he's, he's there and he watches over us as a law keeper and law giver. And you live your whole life hoping that in some way, as you observe the five tenets of Islam, which includes the creed and the fast and the trip and the alms and, 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 and you, as you do that time after time, after day, after day, after year, after year, that somehow in your mind you hope that in the end of your life, whether it's age 32 or 18 or 98, at the end of your life, somehow your good deeds before Allah will outweigh your bad deeds and maybe you'll get into heaven. But there's no hope, there's no assurance and, and so you see that, that type of, and to me that would be frustration, that would be the undefinable God, that would be the God who is obtuse and, and way out there, the God who is other, other, other in his eminence. When, when you couple that with no assurance and then you live in areas of the world where, where the, what is referred to as the human development index is low and there are little, little economic opportunities, it, it leads to despair and defeat and degradation and despondency. And anger. And so I say, church, it's easy to cross from no hope and kind of a free-floating person into despair and despondency. And, And many of you are there today. But I also want to say to us, and this is a short service, so I'm going to do this quickly. I want to say to us who are Christ followers That because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we should have an indomitable, sustainable, unconquerable hope. I'm going to give you three reasons from the text. The first reason we should have a sustainable, unconquerable hope is, is we know the best is yet to be. The best. If you got married last week and you couldn't be happier and you just were told that an a, a aunt you didn't even know died and left you $5 million, and in and, and, and your office pool you've bet on the North Carolina Tar Heels to win the NCAA tournament, I mean, this is looking good for you right now, really good. If you have all those things going for you, the best is still yet to be. If you have no hope and you have no concept of Christ, this is as good as it gets. But if you're a believer in Jesus, the best is yet to be. Listen to verse 20 of 1 Corinthians. It says, Paul says in just a very pithy statement, he says this. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of Of those who have fallen asleep, Christ is the trailblazer. We, too, will have a resurrection body. We, too, will have an eternity. See, the most wonderful meal you've ever had. Some of you really are into food. Food's a glorious thing. The most wonderful meal you've ever had is a foretaste of the glories of the heavenly banquet. The most beautiful sunset or sunrise or this week, man, the full moon. Was that beautiful or what? The most beautiful Sunrise, sunset, full moon, mountain range, ocean view you've ever had is a foretaste of the glory to come. The most embracing, laughter-filled, empathetic relationship you've ever had is a foretaste of the glory to come. You see, the best is yet to be. The Bible's a book of honesty. Paul says in Second Corinthians, the outward man is perishing. No matter how many bran muffins you eat and how often you work out. The truth is that we are perishing. The Bible says, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. That's very honest. Romans 8 says that all of creation is groaning as if in the pains of childbirth. So so, we are in a world that has trouble and despair and joy and laughter and tears. It's a mixed bag. And in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul writes to me the most beautiful statement about, about death I've ever read. This is what he says to, to the young church at Thessalonica. He says, he says, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who die or grieve as others who have no hope. He says, stop. He says, we grieve. There are people here who have buried a parent or a loved one, a spouse since last Easter. And it's hard. And Paul says, we grieve, but not like the group that has no hope, not like the group who says that when you die, there's a void of nothingness or there's just extinguished life. There's, there's, there's just, there's nothing to live for and die for. We grieve, but not like those who have no hope for, when you say the Bible, the next word is important for, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Or died. For this we declare to you by word of the Lord that we who are alive and who are left to the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a loud cry of command and with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. He says, therefore, we will be with the Lord forever. Encourage each other with these words. And I say, be encouraged because the best that we have, and it's good stuff is a foretaste of what is to come. It's a foretaste of the glory. The the second reason we have unconquerable hope is that I am, if I'm a Christ follower, no longer in my sins. That's what he says in verse 17. If Christ be not risen, you're still in your sins, but he's risen from the dead and you no longer bear your sins. We're in this political year, and we're always hearing about tabloid this, and maybe there's a skeleton in the closet. Let me tell you something. I've got skeletons in my closet, and so do you. I've thought horrible things that I didn't act on, but God knows those thoughts. I've done things I'm ashamed of. But the truth is, and the glory is, that God's already emptied out my skeleton closet. God knows all my thoughts, all my deeds, all my impulses that aren't good at times. And he says to me, I love you. He says to me, nothing can separate you from the love that you have obtained through Jesus. You're mine. You're mine. On Friday night, we had a good news, or excuse me, a good Friday service, and One of the songs we sang. I just love this song. Said said this, this the power of the cross, Son of God slain for us. What a life! What a cost! We stand forgiven at the cross. And the last stanza says, "O to see my name written in His wounds, for through your suffering, I am free. Death is crushed to death." Life is mine to live one through your selfless love. This is the power of the cross. Oh, to see my name's written in his wounds. My name. Because Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the deep mystery and profundity of God, because he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I, as his follower, will never, ever, 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 cry out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because I'm in Jesus. My sins are covered. I'm adopted into the family of God. Because Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. There's no need for any other sacrifice. And see, that gives me hope. That gives me hope. Unconquerable, sustaining hope that on my worst, horrible days, my sins are covered. I love the quote, I say this frequently by the old Puritan that said, When you see your sin, even your tears of repentance need to be bathed in the blood of Jesus. <laughs> it's so true. The third reason I have sustainable hope, and you do too if you're Christ's followers, there, there's no dread. There's no dread because death has been defeated. Now, death is hard and it's a process that is not pleasant and many people will suffer before they die. But but in reality, there's no ultimate dread, ultimate horror because Christ has conquered death. Just listen to these verses. Verse 25 and 26 says, for for, for he must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Romans, excuse me, Hebrews 2 says that, 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 that Christ defeated the devil on the cross and took from the devil the fear of death that he visited on people. Now, death is painful, but I don't fear death because death opens the door to eternity. And that's what Paul says later in this chapter where he writes, he says, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed And then he says this, and then we will say, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, this is the Apostle Paul shaking his fist in the face of death and saying, death, you cannot push me into dread and despair and despondency. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When I breathe my last, I will wake up in eternity beholding the greatness of the triune God. And, and so the, the fear of death, the, the, the trembling is gone. Death is defeated. So, so church, if you're Christ follower, this is sustainable, unconquerable, leaning into the wind, trusting God, going forward, faith. The best is yet to be. Our sins are forgiven and after death, we have eternity. Now let me take just a couple of minutes and, and address people who are here today who aren't Christ followers. And I'm so glad you're here. I'm, I'm really, Some of you are here with family and friends, and it's Easter, and I'm glad you're here. So talk to you about the resurrection very quickly. Number one, the resurrection really happened. It really happened. It's not a mystical... Uh, leap of nothingness into the realm of the unintelligible. In fact, Paul opens this chapter by saying this. He said, you know, Jesus rose from the dead. And if you don't believe me, then go and ask one of the apostles. And if you don't believe them, there are 500 men who saw the resurrected Jesus So go and ask them, not counting the women, 500 men, most of whom are still alive, about the resurrected Jesus with a real body of flesh and blood who died on a real cross of wood and he shed blood and he was buried and he rose victorious. So, So I look at that historically and I say, you know, there is a reason to back up and say it is a reasonable historical assumption to think that it really could have happened. So it's, I say it's. It's, it's, it's reasonable. And it's reasonable because there were eyewitnesses, 500 men plus the apostles. And we know historically that many of these apostles went to their death proclaiming, Jesus is risen from the dead. Now, if I'm an apostle, and all I have to do to save my life and to get out of harm's way, and to not die a horrendous death is to say, guys, it's not true. It, it's kind of, it, we, it, it was a fabrication. It's, it's not true. Boom. You're, you're free. Caesar's Lord, I don't care. Whoever it's, well, they didn't do that. They died with this cry upon their lips. He is risen. Been in Carthage, Northern Africa, and... Went to this arena, stones were broken down, worn by time. Used to be a Roman Colosseum, small Roman Colosseum in Carthage, which was an incredible city in North Africa during the Roman Empire. And as we stood there, uh, a a local pastor told us about two women named Perpetua and Felicity, who in 2003, Perpetua was a, a woman of noble birth, very, very wealthy. Felicity was her handmaiden, and they both came to faith in Christ. And an edict was communicated throughout the kingdom or the Roman Empire that unless you profess that Caesar is Lord, you'd be put to death. And so here's Felicity. She's she's 21 years of age, just had a baby. She's nursing her little girl. And they come and they say, do you confess that Caesar's Lord? She says, I, I can't do that. And her handmaiden who's pregnant says, I can't do that. So they take him and put him into prison. Her dad is a very wealthy, well-known man. He went to prison with his granddaughter so she could nurse her. And he would plead with her, just say, Caesar is Lord. It's no big deal. I said, I can't do that. I cannot do that. And Felicity, again, pregnant, the handmaid, I can't do that. And so the day came when they had the final court appeal and they said, do you confess that Caesar is Lord? And they said, we can't do that. Jesus is Lord. And, and so they, they took him and they, they, they put, put him in blood-soaked skins of animals. And they took him out to the arena. And as the animals began to tear into their flesh, the bloodthirsty crowd, even those people had something of a conscience, and they cried out, please kill these women. They're suffering too much. They died. All they had to do to walk away into the Carthage sunset is say, Caesar is Lord, but they didn't because the apostles didn't. The early church didn't. There are people all around the world today who have been put to death because they won't say, this system is Lord. They're saying Jesus is Lord. So it's, it's, to me, the resurrection is historically reasonable. Their are eyewitnesses. It's available to all. All who say, I'm a sinner and the eternal God died on the cross for my sin. It's a wild and wonderful story. And like I said, a lot of you are here today and, and you're just thinking about it, you're processing it, you're struggling with the resurrection, you're struggling with the the, the teaching of Jesus, you're struggling with this. And I'm so, it's, it's, to me, it's a process. It's a process. It's, it's, it's you just deal with this, you deal with that. But sometime in your life, listen, there, there comes a point where you step across the line from questions and to, 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 to belief. And, and it's... It's something the Holy Spirit does in your heart as you think, and as you hear, and as you listen, and it's wild, and it's wonderful, and it's hard to put your finger on the point in the time at times, but you cross from unbelief to belief. If you've been here more than three or four times, you know that one of my favorite writers of the last century is a guy named C.S. Lewis, raised in, in Ireland. Uh, mother died when he was six or ten. His father sent him to boarding schools. Some were horrendous. Some were okay. He ended up being wounded in World War I, became a PhD at Oxford University. and in, in his late 20s, he met a guy named J.R.R. Tolkien, Fellowship of the Rings, and Tolkien started talking about Jesus, and Lewis, when he was 30 years of age, said that he became the most reluctant theist in the history of, of England. Now, A theist is someone who just believes that God is, is, uh, exists. So Lewis wasn't a Christian, but he, he went from unbelief or atheism to theism. I believe there's a God. Then he had to deal with the whole issue of who is Jesus? And what does it mean to say God is triune? And he said he struggled and he struggled. He had many late night talks with Tolkien and, 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 and went back and forth. And this is his conversion story. I just, every time I think about it, I just kind of laugh. Lewis said at age 32, he was going to a zoo one day. And he got in the sidecar of a motorcycle. And he said, when I got in the sidecar, I did not believe Jesus was God in the flesh who died on the cross for my sins. And when I arrived at the zoo, I got out believing that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and he was Lord. That's it. I mean, it's not like he, had a, he saw an angel in heaven with a bow. It's not like he had this. He just, it's just the Holy Spirit brought things in his heart. But there was a line that he crossed. And, and I encourage you to cross that line to think, I believe the resurrection is reasonable. I believe there are eyewitnesses who died for what they believe. I believe it's available to all. When you say you're a sinner, I need a savior. That's the glory of the resurrection. He is risen. So this morning I was writing to a friend, and I'm not real good at texting. I, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm old, and uh, when I really to do, do voice texting... We're going down the road. I can't see my phone, so I'll, I'll say something, and then Siri, love Siri, she's my girlfriend. Siri says, "You want to send this?" I say, "Sure, yes." I'm sorry, yes. You know, and they send it, and then I get there. And I go, "Oh my gosh!" I didn't mean to say that. Please forgive me. Don't report me to the authorities. You know that type of thing. So this morning, I'm texting a friend. He's sitting over here, and I, I, I about something. I said. He is risen. And I meant to hit the exclamation point, and I hit the question mark point. <laughs> you know, they're right, they're right next to each other. And I, I, I read the, I did read, and I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send a message back to Ted, and I put, I didn't mean to put question mark, I meant to put exclamation point. I am not a heretic. <laughs> See? Listen, to your, he's risen, exclamation point, not question mark. So, if you're question mark, you're over here. Over here is exclamation point. If you're an exclamation point, you know what? you got hope. You live in hope, sustainable hope, unassailable hope. Go back and forth. It really is strong because your sins are forgiven. The best is yet to be. And death no longer holds ultimate horror and terror. It's good stuff. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the day and for the mercies of Christ. And Lord, during this... uh, Easter day, we just say with the church through the ages, he's risen. He's risen. He's risen. And because of that, Lord, I pray that we would live with um, sustainable, conquering, forward, leaning into the wind hope as believers. And I pray for those who are here today who are in process and they're thinking and they're walking through this and that they may be at a point in their life to say, I believe there's a God because I see the order of the universe and the miracle of birth and the joy of, uh, of development and all of these things, but I just don't know about Jesus. I pray that you'd meet them at their point of need and that they would go from he has risen question mark to he has risen exclamation point in Jesus' name.